When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lucy. It was a lovely reading of of God's Word, and thank you all for your welcome. Last time I was with uh, you folk, or some of you, it was in fact the Sunday immediately before Nicolette and Marco's arrival uh, here in the UK. So just to give it a sort of time frame for you. And now, of course, you have Marco on the team. Uh, I realise that quite properly that means there are fewer opportunities for preachers from other churches to come and preach. So I do feel very grateful to you for fitting me into the the programme. Words are uh, tremendously powerful, aren't they? At least they they can be. Um, The words we speak have the power to hurt or to help. Words can be used to essentially knock people down or build them and lift them up. Um, Some years ago, as I think some of you may know, um, there was a story of someone who who was a blind man. He was sitting, begging. People do in this country as well as in many other places, sit and and beg. And this man was a blind beggar. And on a piece of cardboard which he had on the the, uh, pavement, the sidewalk in front of him, on the cardboard, uh, very clumsily scrawled, there were these words, blind, please help. And someone observed him from a distance and noticed that very few people who walked by actually stopped and dropped any money onto the pavement in front of the man. And so this person, after watching for a while, walked over, took up the cardboard, turned it over to the other side, took out a pen and wrote for a few moments. And then put it back again in front of the blind beggar. 
And then he withdrew to watch how many people stopped. And many people passed by, read what was written, and then began to give their money. What made the difference was this. The card no longer said, blind, please help. It said, it's a lovely day. You can see it. I can't. Please help me. Do, do, you, do you get that sense? You see, that, That's what words can do. Jesus, I suspect, was very careful about the words he spoke. I don't for one moment think he ever said a careless word. But of course he said many words which were very controversial. Because although he was cautious to not speak wrongly, he was careful to say the things which needed to be said, even if they would be received badly. And uh, of all the many incredible things that Jesus said, the most outstanding, the most incredible, often the most controversial, were not the things he said about life, death, heaven, hell, prayer, love, fasting, justice, or any of these things. They were the things he said about himself. Do you realise that? The most striking things that Jesus said were the things that he said about himself. And in the Gospel according to John, from which we've had a reading today, there are, I, I think, nine occasions recorded when Jesus spoke about himself. I am, he said, the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't stumble. You won't grope your way in blindness. You'll see where you're going. Jesus said, I am the way to God. I am the door. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I've been at three funeral and thanksgiving services in the last three to four weeks, I think. And each one of those services, the first words spoken by the minister who was conducting the funeral service were those words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. And uh, today we come to his words in John's Gospel, chapter 6. Turn back if you've closed your Bibles, page 1070 if you would. We're just going to need to touch base with God's word from time to time as we, we go through. In fact, if we look initially, please, into John chapter 5 and verses 16 to 18, I want to just make this point. The, the Pharisees, the religious people of his time... Um, were the ones with the biggest problem with the things that Jesus said. Particularly the things which he said about himself and the things which he claimed for himself. In fact, the Pharisees really had three fundamental problems with Jesus. Uh, and uh, two of them are caught up in John's Gospel, chapter 5, and verses 17 and 18. Listen to these, these words. Uh, verse 16 says, Because Jesus was doing these things, that is, healing people, on the Sabbath... The Jews persecuted to him, persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, there are two of the problems which Christ's enemies had with him. Uh, first of all, um, as far as they were concerned, the things he did were done on the wrong day, on the Sabbath day. Um, you know, years ago it said that um, Queen Victoria was on one of her estates in Scotland 
and uh, she was with her gamekeeper or water bailiff, whatever, someone who looked after that part of her estate. And it, it was what the Victorians would have called the Sabbath day. And apparently Queen Victoria looked out across the lake, across the lock, and she saw there was a man in the middle of the lake in a boat fishing on the Sabbath. And apparently Her Majesty said, look at that. Terrible. A man in a boat on the lake on the Sabbath. Whereupon the old chap with her said, oh, well, Your Majesty, um, even the Lord Jesus went out in a boat on the lake on the Sabbath. To which she replied, two wrongs do not make a right. And that was the sort of problem which the Pharisees had with Jesus. That he would persist on doing things on what, as far as they were concerned, was the wrong day. The, the second thing is also in that passage which I read to you. He not only did things on the wrong day, but he, he said the wrong things about himself. They tried all the harder to kill him because he called God his father, thus making himself equal with God. So he, he worked on the wrong day. He said what they believed to be the wrong things. And of course, thirdly, he would insist on mixing with the wrong people. He mixed with the people who were, well, the Bible sort of groups them together, says tax collectors, quizlings, people, traitors to their own country. He mixes with tax collectors and with Samaritans. As a child once wrote in, in a, a school exercise um, with, with innocent humour, uh, a child once wrote this, Jesus associated with tax collectors and women who were Protestants. I think we know what he meant to say. But you see, Jesus did. And so actually, let me just draw this quickly um, together. The biggest problem which the Pharisees had with Jesus, incredible, was that he was insufficiently religious. Do you get that? That's the nub of their problem. He just wasn't religious enough for the religious people of his day. Well, he may have been unpopular with the Pharisees, but he was hugely popular with the ordinary people. Because at the beginning of chapter 6 of John's Gospel, in the second verse we read, a great crowd followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Uh, Jesus spoke in a way that connected with people. Uh, they particularly appreciated the fact that he spoke with a confidence and an authority which their other teachers did not. Uh, he performed miracles, of course, he healed the sick, and in John chapter 6 we read about him uh, feeding a, a crowd which may well have numbered as many as 10,000 people. The feeding of the 5,000, as it's often referred to, may actually have been the feeding of as many as twice that number, because only the men were actually counted. So it's quite reasonable, the fact doing quite a lot of women and children, and it may have been many, many more than 5,000 people. And because he had fed the hungry and done these wonderful miracles, John chapter 6 tells us that the people were persistent. When he went away, they tracked him down. They were even prepared to cross the Sea of Galilee and to travel overnight in order to track him down on the far shore. And uh, when we take up our reading where Lucy read to us from uh, chapter 25, the people have found Jesus. So page 1070 or thereabouts in your church hardback Bibles. And uh, they have found him. They're a bit mystified as to how he had arrived where he had. But verse 26 is very significant. 
Jesus says, you, you, you've put an enormous amount of effort into tracking me down and finding me uh, because of the miracles and because I, I fed you. I fed you. And as the passage goes on, essentially he is saying this, um, if only you'd put the same amount of effort into seeking me and, and not just going after the food which I have produced for you. Go after something which is going to last and something of eternal eternal value. Put the same effort into finding that. I've got more than bread and fish for you, says Jesus. I want you to have eternal life. And their response is, uh, well, that sounds very wonderful. And verse 28, they say, what must we do to do the works that God requires? In other words, we want eternal life. What do we have to do for it? What does God want us to do? That may be uh, possibly the most important question that a person can actually ask. What must I do to do what God requires? And the answer Jesus gives is uh, very significant. He says in verse 29, The work of God is this. It is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Do you get that? It's not about being born into the right family. It's not about being part of the right nation. It's not about keeping all the right regulations. It's not about birth. It's not about background. It's not even about behaviour. It's about belief. What must we do to do what God requires? Jesus said, this is what God requires. Believe in the one whom he has sent. And their response as the chapter unfolds is to say, well, if you're the one whom God has sent, prove it. Do a miracle for us. Well, you would have thought in all honesty that he'd already established his credentials with the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the sick. But they want more from him. And they cite the example of Moses. They say, look, we knew that Moses was God's man because he fed us with manna. He fed our ancestors with that manna, that bread from heaven, which they collected every day when they were wandering from Egypt through to to Israel. Um, And in verses 32 and 33, if you care to look down, Jesus points out three things about the manna. I I will summarise them for you. He says, well, this uh, provision of the manna happened a long time ago. It was something God did for your forefathers. God wants to do something for you now. Not just for the people of a bygone age. God wants to give you something just as he provided for people long ago. Secondly, he says, if I'm going to be picky, it wasn't actually Moses who gave you the bread. He said it was God who gave you the bread. You need to get your eyes off the bread and focus on God. And thirdly, he is saying this. Look, the manna was only available for a few years. It was only available for a very special group of people. But now God wants to give you the real bread from heaven... Not just for a few special people, but for everybody. The bread of God is he who comes down, verse 33, from heaven and gives life to the world. And so their response, understandably, in verse 34, is, well, please give us that life-giving bread. We want to eat that. And that takes us to verse 35 and following, where Jesus replies, it's me, I am the bread of life. Bread is mentioned about nine times in this chapter. I mean, it's clearly a very significant thing, isn't it? Jesus says, I am the bread 
of life. Just as bread is a staple of the diet of many people, um, essential for their physical well-being, I am life-giving bread. Uh, I'm the one, verse 38, who came down from heaven. I'm not some dusty relic of the past. You see, some of that bread, that manna that was given in the days when the Hebrews were wandering in the desert, hundreds and hundreds of years before, some of that bread had actually been preserved. And it was kept in a special box, a chest, where the Hebrew people kept precious relics of their past, called the Ark of the Covenant. And some of the manna had actually been put into the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus is saying, I'm not something, but some dusty relic, you know. I'm alive now. I've got bread for you now. You can have a life-giving, life-sustaining experience of God right now. I'm the living bread. Having me in your life not only gives you life, it sustains life, it satisfies life. In verse 35, he says, uh, whoever uh, comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Years ago, when I came to faith in Christ at the age of 18, I, um, I had no Sunday school background, no church background at all in my life, um, but I became a Christian when I was 18. And I joined a local Church of England parish church uh, close to where I lived. Uh, I'm there, in fact, in two weeks' time preaching after all these years. And um, I, I had never been to Sunday school, or hardly ever been to Sunday school myself, but I quickly found myself as a Sunday school teacher. There was a desperate shortage of Sunday school teachers, and so they asked me if I'd be a Sunday school teacher. And we used to teach the children a little song which went like this, I'm feeding on the living bread. Anybody know that song? Yes, one or two, thank you. I'm uh, drinking at the fountain head, and whoso drinketh, Jesus said, will never thirst again. And then the children would chorus, what, never thirst again? And then we'd all say, no, never thirst again. It's a wonderful thing. It's what Jesus is saying. That if we, if we receive him into our lives, if we make him the one that we are hungry for, the important one, then he not only gives us spiritual life, but he sustains us in our spiritual life. And he gives us a satisfying experience of God. Now, verses 52 down to verses verse 58 are, are quite difficult verses in some ways. Jesus is talking about the necessity of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which is obviously not to be understood Literally, no one ever did eat Jesus, and no one ever has eaten Jesus. Even today, the bread and the wine which Christians eat and drink when they come together to remember what Jesus has done is not an eating of Jesus. Not even in mime. It, it, it is something we do to help us remember what happened to Jesus. There, there was a time on the night when Jesus was betrayed when, towards the conclusion of a meal which he was having with his friends, he took a piece of bread which was just left over from what had been being eaten, and he took it and he, he essentially said this to his friends, look, you, you, you see, how, see how I get hold of this bread? Do you see how my fingers bite into it and bruise it and break it? In a little while, people are going to treat my body 
in the same way that I have treated this bread. This is at the heart of what the communion service is about. When we take bread, we remember that people took hold of Christ, his physical body, and they bruised it, and they tore it. And when we drink wine, we remember that just as wine flows from chalice to cap, so the blood of Christ flowed like that. That, so this is not a passage about the communion. That is something else. This is about receiving Christ into our lives in the same way that we might take food into our lives. Years ago, I was um, doing a week of special events for some children in East Birmingham at a, at a church over there. And uh, Monday to Friday, every evening, I was teaching the boys and girls from the Bible and on the Friday night, I said, now look, if any of you want to, and I think I used the expression, receive Christ. If any of you want to talk about receiving Christ, then I'm going to be here at the church tomorrow morning, along with a few of the helpers who've been involved in the holiday club. And um, we could do this in those days. This was, these were less suspicious times. Um, I said, so what I want you to do, if you want to receive Christ... If you want to ask Christ into your life, come to a church tomorrow morning at 10am. I said, I will be here and some others will be here as well. I said, we'll have no songs, no games, no competitions, no prizes, nothing. Just a few grown-ups who will talk to you about how you can ask Christ to come into your life. And uh, the next morning, a, a few children turned up and I sat down with one child and he said, I've come for Mass I said, I'm sorry. He said, I've come for Mass. Um, I said, well, we're not actually celebrating the Mass here today or any day come to that. I mean, you know, I'm not having a go at any other denomination or practice. I'm just simply saying this is how it was. I said, uh, we're not actually celebrating Mass. He said, no, you said. You said. I said, how, how did I say? He, he said, you said if we wanted to receive Christ. Now, you see... From that child's understanding of things, because of his background, that meant physically receiving a wafer or a piece of bread into his mouth, which he had been taught was the actual physical presence, the physical body of Christ, you see? That's not what John is writing about. That's not what Jesus was talking about. He's simply saying, look, you take bread into your life and it gives you strength and vigour and life. And when you've eaten enough of it, you'll fall for a while. But then, of course, eventually you will need another meal because your appetite reasserts itself. All right, he said, well now, look, you can have an experience of me which will give you spiritual life, sustain that life, strengthen that life, and last, it will actually go on getting better. And in that sense, he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that you need to be... You need to be feeding on. It means to receive Christ in that way. Well, on hearing this, verse 60, look with me. Um, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? This idea that Jesus is the only one on whom we must feed if we are to have spiritual life, that's a very hard saying, they said. 
Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Verse 66, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus, speaking about himself in another place, said, Do not think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring division. There is something divisive about Christ. People are rarely neutral about him. People tend to decide for him or they decide against him. And that's what is going on here. People leave him. And he says to his disciples, are you also going, Lord, who else can we go to? Who else brings us salvation? Who else brings us nourishment? Who else sustains our spiritual vitality? We're staying with you, Lord, because we believe that you and only you and no one but you, you are the Holy One of God. You know, when you believe in Jesus and follow him, you commit to the whole package. You commit to follow him, even in those things which are difficult, to believe those things which are challenging. But who else are you going to go to in this life? for real spiritual life and vitality. Only, only the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the one who came down from heaven. You're the one who gives life Help us to feed on you in our hearts by faith, we pray. Help us to stand for you. Help us to stand with you as we go into the week ahead. To never be ashamed of you. And to not turn away. In your name. Amen.